truth is that it has such a profound impact on every aspect of our life that it will make or break as a sector our future, our, our, our sort of journey to a sustainable future. If we don't get, this sector doesn't do its bit, then we can forget it full stop for humanity and for nature as a whole. Hello everyone and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, Event Director, FutureBuild and co-host Dr. Oliver Jones, Research Director, Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Hello, and welcome to episode four of FutureX. My name is Martin Hearn, and I'm the event director at FutureBuild, and I'm really pleased to be once again joined by Dr. Oliver Jones at Rider Architecture. This week, I'm carrying on our theme of talking to those net zero pioneers and disruptors. I'm really pleased to say that our guest is Manish Dutter of the UK GBC. Manish is a fellow at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and formerly Manish led cross-business teams to deliver and design Marks and Spencer's multi-award winning and globally renowned sustainability strategy, Plan A. He has a wealth of knowledge and experience in sustainability leadership and his role now at the UK GBC sees him look after the membership and partnerships of over 600 member organisations. Oliver, over to you. Hi Manish, thanks for joining us on the FutureX podcast. It's such a pleasure to be here with you Oliver, thank you so much to Ryder and FutureBuild for inviting me uh, to share some thoughts today. Um, I don't get asked much, so it's a real privilege. So thank you very much. Absolutely, absolutely. I think for me, where we should really kick off and begin is for our listeners, just a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today. Well, and I suppose it's also where 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 do I want to get to? Because I'm still desperately seeking that destination, I guess. Um, but let's just rewind a bit. Um, so I think even before my career, my background, which I do like, uh, like talking about um, more and more, is is I was born in Africa. Uh, I'm of Indian origin, and I was basically my childhood was spent in in the nature of East Africa, and also often in the great contradiction in terms of inequality of India, uh, and that kind of shaped me more than I recently I've realised just how much that shaped me as an individual, and so you know living in those sort of extremes or an extreme of beautiful nature and the extreme of sort of uh, polar opposite levels of um, equality and inequality in society were very much part of my upbringing and have shaped me as an individual um the other part of my life that's been really important has been some values that my parents gave me uh, from age zero basically which, which was around um, using the great fortune that one finds oneself to support those that don't have that kind of fortune and working in sustainable development, particularly in India and Africa, uh, was part of my life from, you know, birth, basically. So uh, that's what really shaped me. And I suppose those values and those genetics uh, were formed early on in my life. And then um, again, you know, early part of my career, I, I was blessed with a son um, about 13 years ago. And I think that for me was a real moment of epiphany that that made me look at the world in a completely different way. And for anyone who who has children or has experienced, you know, that kind of uh, addition in your life, you'll realize that you start measuring time in a completely new way. Um, you stop counting your years and you start 
sort of looking at time horizons in from the eyes of your child. And so staring at this newborn in my hands, I rewound to when I was born. And I thought about the world at that time, which would have been in, in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. And, 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 and even think, thought about, you know, when I moved to the UK and thought about things like, well, hang on, there were more butterflies in the garden. There were more bees. There were, you know, there were things that were quite different to the way life is today for my son. And then I fast forwarded to what would the world be like when my son is my age at the time, early 30s at the time. And that really scared me because I could see um, the trajectory was not one that was very favourable. And my main measure of that was not carbon emissions. It was more about loss of nature. And that really scared me. It just so happened around that time, Marks and Spencer, under the leadership of Stuart Rose uh, at the time, were having a similar epiphany. Uh, and Stuart Rose had watched An Inconvenient Truth, the film by Al Gore. Uh, and that really moved him. And, and that moved him so much um, to take a hundred of his top managers into a cinema, make them watch the film, gave them the book and asked them to come back and, with a Marks and Spencer response three weeks later. And that's how Plan A was born at Marks and Spencer. And that happened at the same time as the birth of my son. And so I was very lucky that I could get involved in Plan A uh, through Marks and Spencer. And it, it kind of um, satiated this burning desire inside me to try and create a world or, or play a role in creating a world for my son that would be equal to if not better than the world that you know I was he was sort of coming into um, and and my work we'll, we'll probably talk about it later but the work at Marks and Spencer was was a very important part of my career in terms of me learning about sustainability being able to practice it uh, and seeing some really amazing results as a result of practicing it all within the realm of real estate and not just in shops, which you'd expect for Marks and Spencer, but also in offices, in warehouses, and and actually working with franchise partners and our our businesses right around the world. So that was a very very magical time, and it was through that work that I was very fortunate enough to come across two organisations that play a big role in my life now. One is UK Green Building Council, and we'll talk about them quite a lot. But Marks and Spencer was a founding member of UKGBC. Uh, and secondly was the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, where I'm a fellow now. Uh, and, and it was because of the um, Marks and Spencer's sort of pioneering approach that I was invited um, by CISL, as it's known, the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, to come and provide that case study. So I got to know them really well. And that kind of opened my eyes to um, using the Marks and Spencer experience to of how I could create a kind of um, use that those skills and experience to create sectoral change um, and in 2018 I, I then decided that uh, you know having supported MS through that journey and MS having educated me through the journey that my time now was to try and get a sectoral push and I joined predominantly UKGBC for most of my working life and then a bit uh, I work as a fellow at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership so that kind of that span over sort of 40 mid 40 years is kind of where I've come from and where I am now and we can talk more about where I think I'd like to go perhaps further into this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, what a what a rundown of a of a of a journey there, Manish. The I guess the first place for us to, to start this conversation is there's a lot of people grappling with how to deliver net zero buildings right now. And one of the other things that we maybe don't talk enough about is trying to grapple with becoming net zero in operation as a business. Um, and it's definitely on our radar. It's something that we talk about all of the time. So 
it would be fantastic to get a few more insights off from you and from the work that you did with Plan A, which was so pioneering and so before its time, into just how you think uh, we might be able to do that. Great. And thanks, Oliver, for being so, for your kind words for that work, because it was actually reflecting back on it now. It was bloody hard at times while I was doing it, but reflecting back on it now, it was it was ahead of its time. And you know, net zero is a relatively modern term, right? So we didn't really talk in those terms at those times at MS. We, we we actually talked more about wastefulness um, and, and, and we are just so wasteful in the way we use energy in buildings. And that's what was really motivated. It was, of course, about reducing emissions, but it was framed and, and framing and narrative is so important in this whole discussion. Um, it was talked about how can we reduce waste? And when you when you turn it away from let's become net zero to let's reduce waste, no one likes waste, right? Waste is very understandable and no one likes it. Achieving net zero is not as understandable and is complex. So one of the great things that retail and Marks and Spencer did is like turn quite complex um, um, sort of ideas into simple terms that everyone could buy into. So, so obviously to know how wasteful you are, you need to measure your impacts first. So the first thing I think that I learned really early on at MS was let's measure our impacts. Let's know where that waste exists. Let, let's put in that sort of live metering into every building to understand how we're consuming energy. Really simple, but it gave us a hell of a shock as to why our sort of um, base loads were as high as they were. Because it was, just, it was just really simple things that we could turn off or do differently that would eliminate that wastefulness. The second thing is, you know, investing in capability to reduce, to, to really chase down those opportunities. And that, that was almost at every building level. Have a champion that looks out for that kind of thing, that understands what to look for, understands how they can work with others to reduce that wastefulness and do that as quickly as possible. The third thing I think I would share is that M&S were really good at and, and retail you know, they, they, they treated this like a internal change uh, transformation program. Uh, and so part of that is taking people with you. So taking your customers with you, your colleagues with you, and most importantly, supplier partners with you. And to work, to create new supplier partnerships with people that you would not normally work with. You know, the, the solution providers to try and identify, do things to find those solutions really quickly. The, the fourth thing I'd say is, is our focus wasn't just on carbon. Um, we also thought about the social impacts of it as well. We, we thought about workers in supply chains. We thought about things like um, um, human rights in, in construction and property supply chains as well. It's very easy to be a, a sort of very singular on this, but what we understand is that these things are all very interconnected. Uh, and we, you might become really water efficient in a building, but push your carbon uh, expenditure up in that building by being so. And, and not many people draw those connections, so be holistic. The next thing I'd probably add is, is courage, actually, because there were lots of times, as I've already referenced, that were quite tough at MS, things that didn't quite work, things that we'd never tried. So have the courage to go further than what you're comfortable with. Be bold and, and innovate and learn from your mistakes really quickly. Oh, these are all really cheesy, uh, well-known sort of sayings, but I couldn't, you know, the beauty about working in a portfolio which had over a thousand buildings, which had lots of different types of buildings in it, is that we could, that it was like a perfect lab to try lots of different things on. And we did that a lot. And I think from that, we, we are more than ever in this sort of what, what people call this VUCA world. So this sort of volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. It's an American military term, but it couldn't be truer than the world that we're in now. And actually, within that VUCA world, the topic that we're discussing now today here, sustainability, 
whilst MS was a pioneer, actually is becoming so much more normal now to talk about than it was maybe 10, 11 years ago. And it, it's it's affecting organizations right across every part of their 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 operation. So, you know, for individuals that work in them, it's becoming a moral thing. You know, this is really important. They only want to work for organizations that are aligned to sustainable outcomes. From an investor point of view, um, you know, they only want to invest in organizations that are taking this topic seriously. And above all else, it's becoming, you know, if you want, to, uh, if you don't take this seriously, you lose your societal and legal license and ability to operate. It's as simple as that, I think. Um, and if you want to be, you know, positively perceived by your most important stakeholders, and those are the people that work for you, the people that you work with, i.e. your clients and your supply chain partners, then this has to be part of the that sort of contract of work with each other. And, and frankly, you know, my, my last lesson is, as opposed to M&S, where it still felt like a bit of a choice, and M&S didn't treat it as such, I don't think this is a choice anymore. I think if you're an individual or an organisation that are not embedding sustainability, you risk becoming very quickly irrelevant in this marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're an organisation not doing that, as we are now starting to see, you will lose value exponentially. And the thing about real estate and buildings, and your question about net zero buildings, which I probably haven't answered, so I apologise for that, that it's it's a really unique asset class. If you look at all the different areas that we need to become more sustainable in the world, take, take agriculture or aviation or whatever else, real estate is is really unique because putting it's it's really you can you can inter- implement sustainability very measurably. Yeah, you, you can measure it. You can it's it's really tangible, and in and in many cases, if not all cases. The benefits are there. In many cases, they are very immediate. So, you know, switching your lighting, for example, from uh, nowadays everyone does this, but at the time at M&S, we, we were the first uh, super uh, a retailer to switch to LED lighting. Doing that, you know, that, that, there's an immediate benefit, a carbon benefit and a cost benefit. And actually, for all sustainability initiatives that you'd put into a building, all those benefits are definitely guaranteed. They may not be immediate, but they're guaranteed. There are not many asset classes out there or sectors out there that you can say that about. And I think that's what makes real estate really unique. There was two things that I wanted to sort of pull on there, uh, Manish. The, you, Martin and I have often talked about this around zero waste being, should it should really be our focus. Um, and that's more about behaviours and attitudes. And it's and as so rightly as you've touched on, that's tangible to everyday folk, to to the people that work with you and and for you. And and people can understand that zero waste position a lot easier, I think, as as you've you've so well um, articulated. So I absolutely agree on the zero waste point. If we could just pull apart a bit more the supply chain element, because it's so critical in construction uh, at the moment. And you talk about innovation and experimentation, and finding those innovative partners that are going to be able to enable a more sustainable supply chain. And, and that's something we're really passionate about as well, particularly in this FutureX community, looking for those innovators, those, those material startups who are going to really shake up the way that we design buildings. So let's just pull on that thread around supply chains a bit yeah, more. Yeah, great, great thread to pull on. Uh, it reminds me of a quote by the American author, William Gibson, who said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Uh, and I really like that quote. I use it a hell of a lot because I think it's so true, particularly for real estate and construction and property. We have just launched at UK Green Building Council. Well, not about four months ago, we launched a solutions library. My colleague 
Lucy and Alistair have done amazing work in launching this library of 105 solutions, which, which shows that there is a whole abundance of people out there with amazing ideas that are, you know, ideas that work. These aren't just, you know, ideas in a the lab. These are ideas that are, have got real sort of um, credibility, but they're not known very well. And they're not, you know, they're not ac accessed by enough of the industry so that we can get some real pace and scale to them. Um, and our work at UKGBC is making, being that bridge between those innovators and the big businesses that need those solutions to challenge some of our, to, to sort of overcome some of our wicked problems. But I want to rewind a few years back, and Martin will remember, uh, we worked together on uh, M&S on something called the Big Innovation Pitch, which is a really exciting thing. We ran it for three years, I think, uh, from memory. And this was about actually put, being quite open and naked out in the industry about what our challenges were and saying we want someone through the medium at the time of EcoBuild, uh, which was the biggest event of its type uh, at that time, this is going back 10 years or so, to um, come and show us some solutions that would respond to these challenges. And it's not dissimilar to what we're doing at UKGBC now, but this is 10 years ago. And it was amazing to be able to get the kind of response that we did. And some of these SMEs and startups and people, I recall in particular a water uh, efficiency technology. It was a simple attachment at the end of a of a basically a tap that enabled the water to come out still, um, you know, to the user to the same level, but actually 30% less water came out. So it was very water efficient. And the beauty about retail is that if there's an idea like that, we can deploy it really quickly right across our chain with great pace. But that guy who was the innovator, and forgive me for forgetting his name, was had created this innovation in his in his shed, in his garage and needed someone like Marks and Spencer to really give it the kind of platform to really, really, you know, progress. And I was so pleased through that initiative. And, and there were many other examples. That wasn't the only one. Mm. It was a additive that we put into our wet heating systems to make them more energy efficient, i.e. to use less energy to create the same level of heat. Endotherm, I think it was called. Um, and those are the kind of ideas that we, we were able to do at the time um, that we did the Marks and Spencer version of with with uh, the big innovation pitch and now doing it the UKGBC version of. Let me just make a point though about the long tail of construction and, and prop the property sector. You know, we, we, we are fairly, um, uh, it's fairly easy for us just to focus on, on the big brands in, in, in those sectors, the big main contractors, the big developers, the big occupiers. Over 70% of UKGBC's membership, we've got 600 members, over 70% of them are what you would technically term as SMEs. If we had to get anywhere near the net zero aims that we've got, the zero waste aims we've got, whatever you want to call them, engaging that community is going to be like it's it's kind of has to be default. It has to be the minimum that we do. Because they're the ones, they're the solution providers, as I've already shown some examples of, and they're also uh, the deployers of those solutions that we're going to be so very desperately reliant on. So whatever we can do as an industry to encourage them, to inform them, to raise their awareness whatever government can do to um, to create policies that um, motivate them is going to be really, really critical. Otherwise, we're not going to get there. It's as simple as that. Stop focusing purely on tier one. Think about tier two, three, four, five, six, and so on. Manish, that's absolutely fascinating. I remember those times um, fondly as well. Waterblade, by the way, was, was the product. Yeah, um, thank you, Waterblade. We found. And I think having a partner like M&S, and you mentioned it before, one that was willing to take risks, and find these innovations and enable them to quickly scale as well to been 
quite big results was fantastic. You know, you've mentioned the SMEs there. What, what do you feel is holding back this innovation being implemented into you know, the major projects, into the supply chain? It's a, it's a great question, Martin. And, and I think, sadly, um, there were some great innovations that you and I uncovered with the big innovation pitch that didn't make it. And, and it was because I think the, word, the key word here is risk to some degree, right? So I think the sector is quite risk averse. It's quite traditional. It's not easily disrupted. Um, it doesn't want to be disrupted in many cases. I think that's changing somewhat now, but it's still way behind other sectors that, you know, retail is a sector that is being disrupted left, right and center at the moment, right? And is and, and, and so the incumbents are disrupting as well. There are new players in it. Construction and property isn't like that, is it? I mean, we, we've, we're still, we, you know, things like um, augmented reality, virtual reality, blockchain, all these things are, have been around for a while. And 3D printing have been around for a while. But actually, you don't see, it's not, they're not common, are they, in, in the industry at all? I mean, building information modeling is now more common than it was. But it's still, you know, there's still so much further it could go. And 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 so I think the thing that holds us back in the industry for me is is risk. We're not a risk-taking industry. I'm just waiting to see whether there will be a outside-of-industry disruptor that will come in and be willing to take the risk. And I think there are some that are coming. There are some that are here now. Yeah, we've seen we've seen the big tech companies start to dip their toes, you know, Google Sidewalk Labs and and the like over in the US starting to dip the toes in sustainable mass timber buildings. And it, I think it's a matter of time, and I've said it a number of times, that the, the writing's on the wall for, for our profession if we don't start to mobilise and, 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 and invite those innovators in. Um, because if we don't do it, you know, there's plenty of incredibly capable, incredibly intelligent people from lots of other sectors who just look over the fence and think, what are those guys in construction doing? Yeah, agreed. I completely agree. Um, but it's not as if, we, you know, it goes back to that that quote earlier about it not being evenly distributed. It's that we know that these they exist, but there's something about the incumbency of the industry that is very risk averse mm-hmm. and, and it's not able to scale and rapidly deploy those innovations. And I think the winners in the future will be those that are willing to take that risk and, and do that really quickly. And I'm seeing some of the uh, existing players starting to do that more than they did perhaps even two three years ago i was going to ask you um about what sort of what lessons we can take from retail but one one that you've mentioned that i wanted to bring up was the use of language you know you talked about you know, net zero not existing when plan a was launched you know 2007 14 years ago and I, i've just seen that mns now doing you know they're, they're putting carbon literacy now in, in training to all of their that you know that they're leading managers that's something maybe we should bring in the built environment a bit more but it's that use of language as well, I think, I think as, a, as an industry, sometimes we get very technical. We seem to overcomplicate things. But at UKGBC, you're putting out some really great guidance that's much more simple to digest. Yeah, um, uh, thank you, Martin. That's kind. I'm not going to assume that everyone that's listening knows UKGBC. So allow me a bit of a plug, if I may. Mm. And then we can talk about some of that guidance and, and the importance of narrative and language. So we're, we're 14 years old. Um, and our mission is really simple, is to is to radically improve the sustainability of the built environment in the UK. And, and we, we like to work with both the current and future leaders of the industry to create that kind of transformational change. And at the heart of our model are sort of four habits or behaviours, is what I like to call them, or ways of working. 
so the one is collaborate and and bringing that diversity so so we're we're 600 members that we've got 600 members that represent literally every part of the value chain of the industry from investors to planners to architects like Ryder, of course we're, we're very grateful for your membership of ukgbc to engineers to main contractors product suppliers to those main contractors and then fm companies and occupiers etc so we bring all of those that diversity together under under a common purpose um we 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 always want them to do more so advocate is the is the next sort of habit of ours we want our members to make more commitment and and we also have local and uh, and government sort of membership as well and so we want them also to have pro progressive policy we we also want to uh, enable change to happen through learning from others via showcasing solutions as i've already talked about via sharing best practice and case studies and and stimulating action we, we, we encourage people to copy each other that's what we do because by copying each other we won't waste time in trying to reinvent something that's already been invented and we can go at scale because we just don't have the time so you know we we enable that change to happen and lastly we want to make sure that we develop guidance um, and, and create kind of a minimum level of um, minimum and maximum level of performance in the industry, be it for net zero carbon, be it for social value, be it for circularity, be it for resilience and nature based solutions. We're kind of creating those standards and that guidance to enable industry to know what good looks like uh, and, and where they need to get to. Um, we've grown rapidly in the last 24 months. So the pandemic has, has made the industry realize that, you know, as we considered uh, for a brief moment in time, and, and in some parts of the world still are considering the existence of humanity because of a virus, there are some bigger risks that we need to consider and mitigate, such as climate and change and ecological, uh, the ecological crisis. And so that has prompted a huge growth in our membership. We've grown by 40% in the last 24 months. Um, and the other thing I'll just say, just to plug, is that we are one of 70 green building councils. So we've got we're part of the world's biggest green building movement, which means that we can leverage best practice from right across the globe. That's 36,000 organizations, which include 600 of our members, right across the world, working towards um, radical sustainability in the built environment. And so to, just to pick up on your point about narrative in a very long-winded way, so I apologize, apologies for that, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to plug. Narrative is so very critical. We talked earlier about who we need to engage and, and the different tiers of of the supply chain we need to engage and i i think i think the point made earlier about we're bamboozling people by by um by sort of over complicating this is is correct but i i also want to be a bit cautious about this this is quite a complex area to understand right so we've talked about net zero buildings we talked about operational carbon there's a whole concept around embodied carbon which and then we can talk about whole life carbon there are different layers of complexity to this and what we must do and we try and do through our guidance and through through our work is is trying um two things one is to be really clear, really clear uh, and uh, about what all of those things mean so that the industry has one definition of net zero carbon buildings and our advancing net zero carbon buildings framework launched in parliament in 2019 is aiming to do that and the second thing is showing and showcasing and and and, and really learning by example that the building from buildings and, and and companies that are achieving elements of that framework um, so when you put those two things together really clear industry created definition of what net zero carbon or social value should mean in the industry 
with real life examples and practical case studies of how it's being achieved, then the magic can happen and people can understand it. Seeing is very much believing. So I think narrative, uh, breaking down and making simplifying the complexity, but also learning by experience are really important parts of the storytelling of all this. Absolutely. I think, you know, you've given us so much to think about there, Manish, in that, in the, in, in that introduction to the UK Green Building Council. And as members, I can absolutely say, you know, the, the content that, that that's on offer through you guys is, is is unrivaled really in terms of the amount of support and the amount of content and the amount of learning that you can access um, through the UK Green Building Council. So for anyone anyone that's listening or any of the businesses, the smaller SMEs that are out there that are listening, I can I can only really say get involved and and and, and make sure you, you you join up. And and we've you know thank you Oliver for that added plug and and we want to make sure that our membership model is inclusive to everyone. So if you're a startup out there, you know, it's a very, very nominal uh, contribution you make to our membership fees. But if you're a multi-billion pound turnover or a big asset manager, then you pay your proportional membership fees, all of which goes towards, you know, creating, sort of achieving our mission of radical sustainability in the built environment. In terms of the sector then, and we've talked a lot about the fact that we we think it's about behaviors we think it's maybe more about zero waste we need to it is a complex message it's a it's a very complex thing that we're grappling with but we have to try and simplify that to get people on board and the the fact that there's so many construction companies that are small businesses uh, in that sense what in your opinion as a sector what should be our focus you know what 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 should we do next so i think there's one massive elephant in the room that we need to overcome, right? A big overriding challenge, which is the way the sector at all levels seeks to create value, both in terms of the scope of that value and the time horizon in which that value is trying to be created. So what do I mean by that? So at the moment, in terms of scope of value, we don't include other elements of value like ecological value or societal value. We only really include economic value um, that we want from creation of real estate or from built environment and in my opinion we need to include in in the value definition that all parts of all tiers of the 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 industry uh sort of work alongside we need to include social and ecological value as well we can't just leave it at the economic value that an asset creates we need to think about how that asset interacts with the society that's around it how it contributes to bettering society we need to think about how that asset enhances um, eco- the ecological value of its surroundings. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. And we need to think also along those three dimensions over the full life cycle of an asset and not just for like the, the point of time that you're involved in that asset. So if you're an, uh, if you're an architect like Ryder, you've got to think about the legacy and, and the sort of the, the, the legacy of the design that you're creating and not just, you're not just creating the design to earn the fees that your client's paying you, right? So that's what I mean about thinking of it over the lifetime. And, and and that and, and not to limit then on value creation just on the time that a particular stakeholder is involved in that project. Um, and I think what that will mean if we can tackle that elephant in the room and overcome the challenge is that we will start valuing assets differently and create assets in an altogether different manner, which may actually draw more value out of existing assets than always creating new assets. Mm-hmm. And so there's some very popular retrofit first type uh, campaigns that are out there 
which I have a lot of respect for because certainly in the developed world, in the in the world that you know we live in in the UK, in most parts we really do need to fix our existing buildings before deciding to create new ones. Yeah. But only if we value them in a different way to the way we value them at the moment. At the moment, we are purely thinking of economic value. We need to think of a multi-dimensional value proposition for the industry. And that's why I'm I'm really excited. We've you know we've been involved for quite some time now with the Construction Innovation Hub and the work that they're doing around the UK Value Toolkit. And and yes, you know there's lots of toolkits that are out there now. But what's exciting to me about the UK Value Toolkit is that it's you know it's over 200 industry experts and members of the construction sector who are getting together with the Construction Innovation Hub and really looking at how we have a much broader conversation around holistic value on construction projects, but take that conversation to develop an intelligent brief, you know, set some really clear strategic objectives uh, for a number of different categories of value that include biodiversity, that include water quality, land use, uh, resource and efficiency, uh, all the way through to the social side of things, people's mental health and physical well-being and the experience of being in that building and the point of this toolkit that really excites me is that it's exactly as you say it's measuring over a period of time it's it's not here's the design let's get through to completion and, and that's us done it's these are, we are proposing this is the value that we can deliver and we are committed to measuring that over a number of years into occupation and, and, and you know it's really just think about the sector's impacts right just think about the fact that it's 40 percent global carbon emissions think about the fact that 50 percent natural material extraction comes from the sector it's it's really omnipresent and we, and we spend 90 percent of our lives in the sector i.e in buildings in in our infrastructure the the truth is that it has such a profound impact on every aspect of our life that it will make or break as a sector our future uh, our, our sort of journey to a sustainable future mm-hmm. if we don't get this sector doesn't do its bit then we can forget it full stop for humanity and for nature as a whole so it's it's really really profound and so th- we have to think of it we have to think of us as being such a important catalyst in the system um, we, but we don't. We don't even forget about system. Uh, we don't thinking about it as a system overall for society. We struggle to think about the systems even within the industry, uh, and and we need to definitely think much more systemically. And ultimately, you know, c- cities, which is what we create assets to be in, are are the ultimate expression of of a system in in a man made system. Yet we are very poor at thinking in a systems way which is why we think in these linear ways and not in circular ways. I guess as, as we come towards the end of our time speaking with you, you know, we ask everybody um, around the tagline of Future X, you know, our future is yet to be determined. Well, what's your vision for the future and, and, and how would you like to see that future pan out for the planet, but also for the sector? Great question and a great way to sort of conclude our discussion, Oliver. Thank you. Um, so far, our discussion has been focusing on doing less harm, hasn't it, really? It's about removing waste. I'm envisioning a built environment that achieves positive outcomes, actually, that doesn't just do less harm, it actually does more good. But that can be described as creating buildings and places that repair and restore nature, that improve resiliency to a changing, to an inevitably changing climate, to enable greater equity within society, 
and to achieve the best possible health and well-being outcomes for people and for nature by doing that. And I think it's it's a really exciting time actually for for the sector and for professionals in it who are trying to embed sustainability. I think we're in the midst. Well, we're, we are now very much in a sustainability revolution in the sector. And it reminds me of something that Al Gore once said. And I'll go back to Inconvenient Truth, of course, which is where our conversation started, which is, I think, uh, the sustainability revolution that we're in has the magnitude of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. And real estate is at the very epicenter of this, uh, of this revolution and the opportunities that will come to individuals and organisations that really embrace this are truly boundless. That's a, I could not agree more. And you know, thank you so much for for so much of your time and insights into what is what is truly a really complex problem. But I agree with you entirely. You know, there's never been a more exciting time to be in construction, and there's never been a more exciting time to be looking for the next big innovations and trying to implement them on our projects. And and, and on your point around regenerative architecture, which is how I would coin that. I absolutely agree. I think we need to be creating, not looking to create environments that do less harm, as you say, but looking to create regenerative environments that offer social and economic regeneration as well. Yeah, and I'll offer one last quote just to round this off, Oliver. Thank you um, for bringing your examples to the conversation. I, um, you know, it's a Chichilian quote about we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. That I think really captures the potential of impact that our sector, positive impact that our sector could have. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was Manish Dutta of the UKGBC. Thank you for listening to FutureX. Please make sure you like, subscribe and share. Join our community to stay up to date with all things FutureX. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.